We talked this morning about discipleship. And I want to clarify a couple of terms as we get into this tonight because it's important that we be talking about the same thing. When we say the word discipleship or you say the word discipleship, it means different things to different people. And so I think it's helpful to make sure we have our terms defined. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ, right? I think you would all agree with me on that. Someone who is walking with and following Jesus Christ and growing to become more like Him in their relationship with Him, that's a disciple. Discipleship would be your personal relationship with Him as you're growing in your relationship with the Lord. But a term that I use a lot here and I want to make sure is clear is another term It's maybe more of a made-up term, but I think it helps to describe what we're talking about, is that of disciple-making. And uh, you can't live someone else's spiritual life for them. You can't do someone else's discipleship for them. But we are, from a Great Commission standpoint, all to be involved in disciple-making. The process of leading lost people to Christ, that's evangelism, and then helping them to grow in their walk with the Lord. And some would call that edification or teaching them to observe all things. But when I say the word disciple making, I'm really trying to encapsulate both those ideas into the same word because uh, where do we stop with evangelism and where do we start with edification, right? As they're coming to Christ and following Him, we have to just keep carrying right on down the road so that we get to then spiritual reproduction where the person that we lead to Christ, then, praise God, they get to lead somebody else to Christ. And what a joyful thing that is to be, in a sense, a spiritual grandparent in that way. Although you've always probably heard the statement, God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? So every single one of us needs a personal relationship with Him. In other words, my relationship with God has to be with Him. It's not dependent on my dad or my granddad. It's ultimately between me and the Lord. That being said, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as part of the body of Christ, we are to be all working together from the youngest to the oldest to help to make disciples, this process of disciple-making. I believe that as we look around in our city today, let's just focus on our city, even though the world at large has great needs as well. When you look at our city today, there's a great need in front of us. There's a great struggle around us. Since our church has started here in the last five years, there have been a number of churches of various names and, and denominations and organizational connections that have closed their doors, right? in our own vicinity right around here. And the same could be said when you take our city as a whole. As a whole, it seems like churches in general are in decline. And uh, sadly, there, even with lots of church planting that has taken place around our country, it's not enough to keep up with the churches that are closing all around us. And ultimately, it's not just about having buildings with doors open that say they have churches. Ultimately, it's about the individual people that need to come to Christ and follow Him. And I think we're in a place where there is a great need in our country. Our country, historically, over the last hundred years or so, has sent many thousands of missionaries around the world to serve God. And God has done great things in many foreign countries through that. But if we do not see a different... Um, focus in our country, if we do not refocus on the work that God has given us to do, 
I'm afraid that one day we may be the country needing missionaries sent here uh, to reach us. This is an alarming trend, but it is something that I think God's Word speaks to and something that we have the solution to right here in His Word. And you can become overwhelmed when you look at the macro issues in the nation or even in a city. You look at a city like the city of Houston, millions of people, and it feels like millions more moving here every day. But that can be overwhelming or it can be a great opportunity for us to look at all the folks coming to us and God is growing our mission field right here with an opportunity to reach them. That being said, I do not believe we will reach Houston or the world beyond if all that we do is meet three or four or five or six or eight or 20 times a week here and sing songs and spend time together hearing God's word preached and then we go home and just live our lives and then wait for the next time that we can come together here. God has put us here to be missionaries, if you will, in our own local context where we live. And that being said, I think we need to think about how, as a church, we can do a better job of not only getting out, passing out flyers, that's a wonderful thing, telling, sharing people with people where we meet the gospel, that we ought to continue to do all of those things, but how can we can do this effectively and think about what God has called us to do as a church so that, over time, we can be effective disciple-makers. As we begin tonight, I want to give you just a few thoughts on this culture that I believe the Lord definitely gave us an example of in His ministry, and I would call it a culture of multiplication, a culture of multiplication. Because you've heard this statement made, perhaps, that culture works 24-7, right? Uh, I think one writer said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? You can, and when you develop a culture, that's what you do, that's who you are, that's how we behave with one another. And culture ultimately is the spontaneous repeated patterns of behavior. If you get up in the morning and you shower and you brush your teeth and you get dressed and you drink a cup of coffee and you, you have your morning routine, that's part of your culture. And here in our culture, we do things perhaps different than another country might do. Or the culture that's in your house might be different than the culture that's in my house. But we all live in and around culture. And culture is one of those things that's always working, that's always influencing. But sometimes we don't even realize how much influence it has. But think about it. How many children grow up and someday think, I want to drink coffee. Why? Because dad drank coffee or mom drank coffee. How many children begin to walk and talk like their parents walk and talk? I'm getting that more and more these days. People say, well, you just look like Mark. You look like Mark, my dad. Uh, because that's how we are. We are so defined by the culture that we live in that it really works on us even when we aren't even paying attention. Culture is made up of I would say three different things. Number one is values. Values. What is important to us? The convictions of our mind. And for the Christian, that ought to include, of course, the Word of God that is our source of truth, that is our standard, that is our focus in everything we do. These values are the passions of our heart. And yes, it's the Word of God and it's the truth of God, but we see these values carried out in the things that are really important to us on a day-to-day -day basis. I know we would all say 
The Word of God is important to us. But you know as well as I do, there are portions of the Word of God that are more important to you than other portions of the Word of God. That's how we function. I'm just talking about in your being. There are certain things that really resonate with you and that God speaks to you through His Word. There are people that I know that just love the conversation in Scripture around the creation of this world. And we would say it's absolutely important. It's truth. God created the world in seven days, seven literal days. We believe that's true. But there are some that are extremely passionate on this particular issue, and they study it, and they teach on it, and they've been a great help to the church on this issue. There are others who love the passages on prophecy and the end times. And God's word is true when it speaks on the end times and what is going to take place. And, and we need to know what God says about those things. We're not devaluing those things. But I think we'd all have to say, if you said, what's your favorite passage of scripture? Or what's your favorite Bible character? What, you probably have something or someone that resonates with you more than others. These are the values that you have. And as a church, we have to think about what our values are. This summer, I've been trying to highlight these values in our morning services as we've looked at different building blocks. But really, this is focusing around our values as a church. And this is not to say that you couldn't find other values in the Word of God that are important. Please don't misunderstand when I'm preaching on these seven topics that are on the wall that there are other topics that are somehow unimportant. No, there are so many important things, but you know as well as I do, you can only focus on one or two or a few things at a time. And so while we want to value all of God's Word, I think there are some things as a believer that we have to put special attention to, and the reason being because the Lord Jesus Christ gave special attention to certain things. So we have values. Another thing that makes up culture are the narratives. The narratives. Narrative comes in two different parts. You have language and you have story. Language, these are, this is the terminology that we use. So in our church, maybe we use a word like disciple or disciple making. Maybe we use a word like teacher or children's worker or nursery volunteer or we use a word like the AV team or the serve team. We have these different words that we use and these are part of our narrative. These are the language that we use and language is really important in defining our culture. Because the words that we use, that we talk about a lot, those become embedded and ingrained in us and what we do and how we think. The other piece of this is story. One of the special stories at our church is the story of how we came into existence. And I tell that story a lot because I think it gives glory to the Lord because God has been faithful to build His church and He continues to do it. That's an important story. You know, this week as we have teenagers coming together and we go out in the community and we pass out invitations and we invite people to church, we're going to come back and we're going to tell you the stories about what God did this week because those are important stories and they help to define and to guide the culture that is being developed here. You do this in your own house. It's when you sit around and you tell the stories of 
that one time when aunt so-and-so said this or did that, or that one time when grandpa so-and-so had that one funny thing that he said. And you tell the stories of your family. You tell the stories that define who you are, and those stories help to define our culture. Here at our church, I think some of the most special stories are the personal testimonies that people have shared when they talk about their relationship with God and how they came to know the Lord. I really enjoyed on Wednesday night when Peter was preaching as he shared some of his personal testimony of how he came to know Christ and came to walk with him. And that story helps to define the culture that goes on in the Farver home. In the same way, the Farver story helps to define the culture that takes place here at Arise Baptist Church. And the same could be said for every single one of us. So values and narrative. When it comes to our, um, our language and stories that we tell, what kind of stories are we telling at our church? I think we ought to be telling stories of what God's doing in the mission fields around the world. I think those are wonderful stories, and we love having our missionaries come in and share what God has done. That's an important part of developing our culture here. But it's also important for us to share the stories of what God's done in our lives. That's an important part of what God is doing, and it helps to shape the culture of our church. Imagine coming to a church where you didn't know anybody, and you didn't know how they came to Christ, or if they knew Christ at all, it would kind of feel flat and dead. But as I look around, I'm thankful. I feel like I have a bit of a privileged position, because I look around and I know so many of your stories, and those stories help to make up who we are. But I think those stories of what God has done in your life need to be brought even closer in so that they can better strengthen the culture that we have here. We need to tell the stories of people being saved. We need to tell the stories of people growing in their relationship with God. We need to tell the stories of spiritual reproduction and stories of multiplication in and around the church. Our values are expressed in our narratives, what we talk about, and those narratives then become our behaviors. And that's the third part of culture, values, narrative, and behaviors. Our behaviors. This is fundamentally what we do. Like think about it. If you had to write down what, what is church or what do you do at church, those would be our behaviors. You might say, well, we sing, we read from God's Word, we pray we hear that guy talk a whole lot and he preaches we we come to 803 curtain street we teach sunday school we work in the nursery you, you could come up with a whole list of things that you would say are our behaviors but when it comes back to what we looked at this morning in the area of discipleship what i want us to examine and to think about ourselves is are we living out the behaviors that christ lived out are we seeing the spiritual growth in our own lives and the spiritual growth in those around us that we ought to see based on the truth of God's Word? And if not, then what needs to change so that those behaviors become what they should? The reality is this. I understand as the pastor of this church, I have a great opportunity to be able to speak publicly to all of you more than anybody else here does. So culture, it does come from the top. What is important uh, to the leadership of the church will be important to everybody else in the church. 
or you just won't have a church at all. You see those who have great desires and thoughts about ministry and things, but they're not leading others in that, and so the church dwindles away and dies. Or you see leaders who are in the position but are not leading at all, and so it also dwindles away at all. At the end of the day, I realize as the pastor here, I am a culture creator in our church, and I will get the culture that I create or that I deserve. It's my desire that we have a culture of love, a culture of care for people in need. And I believe God's doing that. I'm encouraged by that. I believe we want to have a culture that is focused on reaching lost people. And I'm thankful that we see that in our church and a culture that is developing people in their relationship with God. But we have to be careful because as we look around in our church and at ourselves, if we're unhappy with things like Dad, if you're unhappy with things in your family, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, what can I do differently? How can I make this a better culture? And the way we want to focus as a church, I believe we've already begun to do this, but I want us to grow in, is in a culture of multiplication. A culture of multiplication. And the way that's going to work is as we are faithful to make disciples. Every Paul needs a Timothy, and every Timothy needs a Paul. Everyone needs to be finding somebody else that they can lead to Christ, that they can then lead in their walk with the Lord, and then find somebody that they can follow in their relationship with Christ. And we all need to be taking the next spiritual steps. A few years ago, we called that the one, right? That we all need to be leading one, following one, and taking one, taking the next step, leading somebody else in their relationship with Christ and following someone else in their relationship with Christ. At the end of the day, I think as a church, our focus ought to be as individuals that we are all working ourselves out of a job, so to speak. We're all just an interim in our position. Someday, someone else will be the pastor of Arise Baptist Church. I hope that's a long time from now. But someday that will be the case, unless the Lord comes back. Someday someone else will lead music. Someday someone else will play the piano. Someday someone else will be greeting at the door. Someday someone else will be working in the nursery. And you go on down the road. So every leader, every person needs an apprentice in this process. Every mentor needs a mentee. Every discipler needs disciples. So how do we create this culture that we're talking about? I think there's three very important behaviors that we need to look at to create this culture. And I want you to look at God's word with me tonight. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I'm going to say this first about multiplication. Multiplication can start small, but it must dream big. It can start small, but it must dream big. When Shandy and I had only been married a short time and began to have children, people said, well, that's good. You had a child. You know, people were excited about our first and our second. But then our third came along and then our fourth and people began to wonder what are you doing? 
I said, well, it's multiplication, right? It starts small, but has the potential to be very big. Here's the thing. It's not our responsibility, per se, to sit around and dream like, well, how big can our church be? Rather, our focus ought to be, as Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, on the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Our question should not be, how can we grow our church? No, how can I be faithful to see God's kingdom grow to be what He wants it to be? My focus as the pastor of our church is not trying to figure out how to get more people in our building. My focus is, how can we get more people involved in Great Commission work? so that we can send people out of this building to go reach this world around us, starting right here with our own city. Multiplication can start small, but it can dream big. In Acts 1.8, it started really small. You had this 120 people gathered in that upper room waiting for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he started in Jerusalem, and then it expanded to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. Here's the second thing about multiplication. It requires everybody to have an apprentice. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul said this, The things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I look around in the room here. Tonight, we have some men that have worked in construction. Brother Jeremiah has a plumbing company. I remember talking to him one time, and he was telling me how he learned plumbing. He got under another man who was a plumber, and he learned, and he worked alongside of him. And I'm sure you dug a lot of holes, and I'm sure you did a lot of repairs on things, and you carried his tools and did whatever needed to be done you, in a sense, apprenticed under him. And maybe you even called yourself an apprentice. I don't know. Did you? And now he's taken the test. Now he's got his own business. Now he's a master plumber. And in time, I know he's already done some of this, and I'm sure he will do more. He will have apprentices working under him. Why? Because that's the only way that the profession gets passed on. That's one reason. Another reason is because you can't do it all yourself. And you need help from other people who are learning and growing. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Take those things that you've heard, that you've learned of me, and pass those on to somebody else. Think about this in your own life. Who is your spiritual apprentice? Who are you leading to become like Jesus Christ? I think we all need that person. I think this is important too. I would ask this question. Not only who are you leading, do they know that you're leading them? Because sometimes we like to be really uh, generic about things. Oh, yeah, I'm leading lots of people to follow Christ. Well, who are they? Uh, okay, give us who they are. Now, let's go ask that person. Do you know that this person is, is your spiritual mentor? Like they're really helping you? Or, or are they just sort of generally, this could be a danger for a pastor to fall into. Well, I'm leading all this church to follow Christ. Well, am I really? Or are they coming because their friends come here? Are they just coming because they like the 
piano player. They're just coming because they're married to somebody. Like, am I really leading these folks to follow Christ, or are they just here for a different reason? I think we need that very close and intentional relationship like Christ had with his disciples. And I think the third behavior I'd say about this multiplying culture is that multiplication, it's not about my castle, it's about God's kingdom, right? It's not about me just seeing how many people I can fit into my room or into my building or to my house. It's about looking to say, how many people can we send out to further God's kingdom? I have a picture I want to show you. I think I've showed it here before, but I think it explains this very well. We have two funnels. One is uh, set in a normal direction where you put a lot of things in the top, and over it it says modern-day discipleship. This is how a lot of church ministry works. This is, in a sense, what we're going to do this week with handing out a whole bunch of flyers and hope that we can have a few people come after we hand these out. It, it's something we can do. It's something that has, has an effect. But it's not the most efficient thing to do. I would tell you the more important thing that we're doing this week, besides passing out the 50,000 flyers, is the time invested in the teenagers that are going to come and be here this week. The time teaching them, the time instructing them, the time mentoring them step by step and day by day. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the impact that these could have of reaching somebody that we don't know. I think that's a wonderful opportunity but real transformation takes time. Real transformation takes somebody to mentor somebody else. Jesus' discipleship strategy, he spent the majority of his time with a really small group of people that then over time, they turned the world upside down. So, in this process, how are we going to develop this kind of culture at our church? If this is biblical, if this is what God wants us to do, we need to understand a few things. That this process of making disciples, it's slow. We talked about that a little bit this morning. We'd all like to microwave somebody's spiritual change, but it's not fast. It's slow. It's slow. And I would say it, it's also hard. It's hard. It's hard to do. It's harder to disciple somebody for five years than it is to get a bunch of people together for one week and pass out 50,000 flyers. But that one person who walks with the Lord and has somebody investing in them for multiple years has much more potential to go on for Christ than lots of seed being scattered. And I'm not saying we stop doing this. I'm saying we have to do both. We have to do both. Discipling the few is slow. It's hard. And it's limiting. My wife and I have talked about this a lot. When you really begin to invest in somebody's life, it's a wonderful thing. It's slow. It's hard. But it will also limit you from being able to be invested in someone else's life, too. Parents understand this. When you're investing in your own children's lives, you don't have time to invest in everybody's kid's life at the same level that you invest in your own children's life. Teachers understand this in their classroom. They focus their time investing in their class. They're not teaching all the classes. In the same way, as you begin to minister to others, you're going to be limited by what you can do. And this is where it gets hard. Because I think ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been trying to throw off the limits that God has placed around us. 
And this is the hard thing because if you will really invest in somebody's life, it's going to keep you from doing some of the other things that maybe you want to be able to do. Here's the thing I found, and I know I, I'm, I'm here like almost seven days a week doing ministry stuff, but even with seven days a week and 24 hours a day, there's not enough time to meet everybody's needs and to teach everything that needs to be taught and to help everybody as much as they need to be helped. There's just not enough time to get it all done. And you have it even harder than I do because you're not paid to be here all day, every day. So when I'm asking you to do this, I'm not asking you to do this because it's easy, it's hard, and it is limiting. You're not going to be able to, most likely, faithfully mentor and disciple 50 people. You probably won't even do 20 people, probably not even 10. Even Jesus Christ, he poured his time into his 12, and even one of those was a Judas. So when we're talking about this, I'm talking about an intentional process that we can develop in our church where everybody has somebody, at least one. But if, there was, if you had the potential for two or three or four, that'd be a wonderful thing. But probably most of you won't be able to do that. And that's not because you're not skilled. It's not because you're not able in the sense of you have strength. It's because you're human and you have other responsibilities in your life. Moms with kids at home, dads with small children, you're not going to have as much time to do this as somebody else. If you're working and gone all the time, you're not going to be as much a part of this as somebody else. And that's okay. It's okay. Because I'm not asking you to disciple everybody. I want each of us to take a look at God's word and say, God, with what you've given me, like that little boy with his lunch, he only had five loaves and two fish. Am I saying that right? Yeah, five loaves and two fish. He didn't have 10 loaves and 17 fish. So all you can do is come to the Lord with what you have and say, Lord, this is the amount of time I have. You could, do a, you could figure it out in your own on your schedule for the week. We all have the same number of hours in the week. And the way you spend your hours is what it is. You're going to spend a certain number of hours sleeping. Maybe with as warm it is in here tonight, you feel like maybe I'll just save, use some of those hours right now. I understand. Right? You only have so many hours. You're going to spend so much time eating. You're going to spend so much time cleaning and taking care of things. And you ought not to neglect your family. You ought not to neglect the important things that God has placed around you. And yet God's given us this responsibility to make disciples. So it's limiting. So I want you to understand if you really step into this, and some of you already have, and I desire for more of our church to step into this, you're going to feel restricted at times. And that's okay. You and I are limited, but God is limitless. And I would say this as well, discipling the few demands a lot from me. It demands a lot. It demands a lot from us physically, but also spiritually, spiritually as well. So how do we develop this disciple-making culture to Rise Baptist Church? I think there's four key components that we need to think about. Number one, a biblical foundation. We don't do this just because we make it up and we feel like it sounds good. We do it because it's biblical, because it's right, because it's the Word of God. It also takes intentional leadership. This doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. Parents, you aren't parenting well by accident. 
If you do well at your job, it's not by accident. It's intentional. It's intentional. It takes intentional leadership. A third piece of this, it requires a relational environment. This isn't something that gets done through the computer or over the email. We might be able to communicate that way, but we have to have deep relationships with the people that we are leading in their relationship with Christ. Yes, I can send them a text. I can call them on the phone. But there's got to be some real FaceTime and not just on the phone FaceTime, like real actual time with that person living life with them, a relational environment. But also, and this is one we're really focusing on right now, a reproducible process. I think we see in our church lots of organic relationships developing. That's wonderful. I love hearing the stories of people who are meeting and studying God's Word together, people that are being encouraged by the Word, people that are meeting and praying together, and all that organic stuff is awesome, and I wish it was all organic. But I also understand for us, having a reproducible process helps us to look at where we're at and say, hey, how can I do a better job with this? We see that biblical foundation taught about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 where Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and he says, And ye became followers, that word is imitators or disciples of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Paul said it this way another time. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. If someone follows you, would they find Christ? Would you lead them to Christ? But here's the reality. There are a lot of people that will follow you before they'll follow Christ. Have you ever realized that? Those are your neighbors. Those are your coworkers. Those are the people that you build relationships with, and they begin to know you and walk with you and live close to you, and then you point them to Christ. This biblical foundation when you study the book of Acts and you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you see a man who knew the Old Testament. He knew the Word of God. He was a Pharisee. He knew so much of the Word of God. But even with all of his knowledge, he did not invent his own plan of salvation or process of discipleship. So what I'm telling you here tonight is not original with me. It's not original with Paul. It's an original with the Lord. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He said, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. My friends, as we look at this practical stuff tonight, we can never divorce it from the power of God's Word and the work of Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit in our lives. This ministry of making disciples requires a biblical foundation. But it also requires this relational environment. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. Why? Because you were dear unto us. You were dear unto us. I wonder what your attitude is when you come to that person that you're leading in their relationship with Christ. Do you have a 
heart for them? Do you love them? Do you want to see them grow in their relationship? Paul said, we wanted to impart to you our own souls. So he wasn't just focused on, well, let me preach the gospel to you. No, now let me give you of myself too. Why? Because he wanted to lead them in their relationship with the Lord. It's a relational environment. This reproducible process, a reproducible process. He says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. They moved from being imitators to examples. So if you had to graph yourself on this line of becoming like Christ, and yes, we're all imitators of Him, but are you in the imitation stage where you're not a, a much of an example to somebody else yet? Or have you moved to where you're now ready to be an example to somebody else in their relationship with the Lord? In other words, we see spiritual growth. There ought to be nobody in our church who says, well, I've arrived spiritually. And we ought not measure spiritual maturity just by how long someone's been at the church. We can't measure spiritual maturity just by how well they can sing or even how well they can teach, but rather how much they're growing in their relationship with God and how well they're doing in being an example to others as well. This culture requires that it be focused in love. Paul already referenced that. I want to give you my own soul, he says. 1 John 4.20, the Bible says, If a man say, I love God, and hate his brother, he's a liar. He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Jesus said in Matthew 22.37-40, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And he said in the second, is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This week we hung up these signs on the back wall. It says, Arise Baptist Church exists for the glory of God. We fulfill the Great Commission. We follow the Great Commandment. This follows right along with our mission statement as a church. Why do we exist? Well, because God put us here to glorify Him. He's worthy of our worship. And we do that as we fulfill the Great Commission. We go and make disciples. But we must do all of that in love. Fulfilling the great commandment. Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. I put that on the back wall here, not just so I can stare at it when I'm preaching if I get bored of looking at you. No, I put it on the back wall so that when we stand up, we turn around, we leave here on a Sunday morning, we're reminded, oh yeah, this is why we're here. That's where we're going. I hope you get time to look at some of the pictures on this end. We have our church anniversary photo uh, from a, a few months ago when we had our fifth anniversary. So if you're here for that day, you should be able to find yourself in that picture. Here as we think about the glory of God, we think about worshiping Him together, and we have a picture of folks singing together, filling, fulfilling the Great Commission. We have a picture of Clayton being baptized, and so you'll enjoy that picture as well. And then over on this side, following the Great Commandment, this was our church being involved in helping another church, loving on them as we went and ministered in their community with the gospel. But can I say this as we think about this culture focused by love? that there are problems that will arise in our church when spiritual maturity gets equated with biblical knowledge. 
Just because you know a lot doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Did you know the devil knows the Bible really well? Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 2 he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, he said, and have not charity, I'm nothing. That's a strong statement. Nothing, nothing, really nothing, nothing. So, how do we do this? Well, we define our culture properly. Right? We already, I already talked about some of this. What is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. A disciple is somebody who is following Christ, right? He said, follow me, Matthew 4, 19. It's somebody who's being changed by Christ, and I will make you. And it's somebody who's on the mission of Christ, fishers of men. That's a good way to say it, isn't it? A disciple is somebody who's being who is following Christ, who's being changed by Christ, and who's on the mission of Christ. If you had to give yourself a score on your own discipleship, your own relationship with God, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? Are you being changed by Him? Is He working in your life? What has He taught you lately? What has He encouraged you with lately? What has He shown you in your own life that needs to change? And then are you on the mission of Christ? I think if we're careful to define what a disciple is, it'll help us to do a better job of making them. Because disciples aren't just attenders. Disciples are people who are following Christ, being changed by Christ, and on the mission of Christ. Where are you on that spectrum? We need to define what a disciple maker is. It's a person who helps someone else to become a disciple, right? That's pretty simple. So am I a disciple maker? And then, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, Paul defined it for us very well. It's the good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's that you can be saved by faith, that your sins are forgiven, and we need to be really clear on what the gospel is. And by the way, who is it available to? It's available to all who will believe on Him. So we have to define it. I think we probably would do a pretty good job there. But now, here's where we get to maybe where we need some work. This culture has to be lived out. Has to be lived out. So when the Great Commission says go, that means we all have to do it. You can't delegate that part of the Great Commission. We need to understand the Great Commission can't be delegated. It's incumbent upon me that I must go because God's going to have you go to a place that I'm not going to go. We're going to go different places. That's okay. I want you to understand going may mean coming and joining us on a Saturday morning. That's wonderful, and I hope you do. But going may also mean going next door 
going to your family, going to your friends. You cannot delegate that part of the culture. So here's how I look at that. As the pastor, I can't just say, well, our church does a great job with making disciples. Well, pastor, what do you do? Well, I just tell people to do it. No, I have to go. I have to go. I've got to live out this culture. You have to live out this culture. If we're going to have a multiplying culture, then we all have to take ownership of that. Second thing, we all have to be, right? I have to live this out. Something I've been trying to do is take somebody with me whenever I am ministering to somebody else. If I have to go to the hospital, I want to take somebody with me. If I have to go to visit somebody in need. I want to take somebody with me. If I'm going out soul winning, I want to take somebody with me. If I'm trying, if I'm learning more about preaching and about things, I want to take somebody with me. I'm enjoying taking some people with me this summer in that process. And some of you guys are preaching and, and doing that. We ought to look around and say, who am I taking with me in my relationship with the Lord? Who's my apprentice? Who am I helping? And you look around this room, that person that you take with you might be right here right now. We have to go, we have to be, but we have to see it too. We have to help others see. This is as we share the testimonies of what God's doing. You know, it's slow. I've been spending a lot of time with a guy trying to help to lead him in his relationship with the Lord lately. And we've been meeting every Wednesday night, except there's a whole bunch of Wednesday nights we haven't met. So if I tell you we meet every Wednesday night, it's really not true. We try to meet every Wednesday night, but you know, there's been some Wednesday nights when I've been gone at camp with the kids. There's been some Wednesday nights when he's been gone and we haven't been able to get together. So what do I do? Do I just give up? Do I quit? No. I want to continue to live out a godly example. I want to continue to encourage him and reach out to him. But I want to continue to share the testimonies with you of the spiritual growth of what God is doing to change his life and what God can do to change yours as well. We have to live this culture out. And that means all of us. But this culture also must be modeled and guarded. We're almost done here. It has to be modeled and guarded. There's two pieces of this. First of all, we need to create a safe environment where people are able to work through their struggles and questions. This is why I love being able to meet with people and take them through a book like Continue and and be able to answer their questions. And man, it's amazing how many questions people have. You don't have to be educated to have good questions. You don't have to have grown up in church to have lots of questions about spiritual things. It's wonderful. And, and I've joked with some of you, you know who you are along the way about how much time it's taken us to get through continue. Or, you know, we keep joking about, boy, this record's like a year and two years and a year and a half and all these things. You know, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because people need a safe place to be able to ask those questions, work through those struggles. So one of the things we're doing, and James is going to help me in explaining some of this next month, but we want to create an environment where we have a place for those of you who are more spiritually mature to be able to lead others in your relationship with Christ. This will happen on a weekly basis. You won't be able to make it every week in the same way I won't be able to make it every week. But we want to be intentional about this organization and this structure. But at the same time, I want to take some of that responsibility and give it to you so that I can and my wife can and others of us can who feel ready and want to do this, be able to take on some of the new believers God is bringing our way and some people and be able to help answer a lot of their questions. 
One of the things I find that's a big hang-up for people in trying to lead somebody else in their walk with the Lord is the fact that they're going to ask a question that I don't have the answer to. And, and that's a real thing, right? And so people won't come to you and say, no, I won't do it, but they just kind of sit back and they're like, eh, let somebody else do it. So what I'm trying to do, what we're going to do is create a, an organization by which you can be able to encourage others in their faith, but people maybe who are growing along with you, more of an iron sharpening iron kind of approach. And we'll let those who maybe have a little more background, a little more spiritual maturity, a little more understanding of truth and are ready to take on some of those hard questions that the new, new believers might have and begin to help them. And if you feel like you're ready for that, let me know. I'm not trying to make this an exclusive me versus you kind of thing. This is all of us working together. But we want to create this safe environment. But along with that safe environment, we need to have a truth-filled environment. This is one of those things, right? When you get a group of people together to talk about the Bible or study together, sometimes it gets away from truth. And people get more involved just talking about, well, this is what I think and this is what I feel and this is what you know, I saw. And, and then you end up with this group that's not focused on truth for finding the answers. It's more just sort of hanging out, shooting the breeze and, and not getting anything accomplished. So we need a safe environment and a truth-filled environment. So I want to give some guidelines for how I think that can work in our church. And, and we're going to, I'm going to wrap up here tonight. First of all, as you are, and as we help to organize you to connect, to do these Bible study this way, to disciple one another this way, I want you to focus on the fact that within the people that God gives you the opportunity to lead spiritually, there needs to be a measure of confidentiality. In other words, when someone shares their struggle with you, it's not your job to go blab that all over the church. Amen. It's one of the challenges, right? Boy, bees are just keep everybody quiet in their seat, let the preacher preach and nobody else. It requires some confidentiality. Now, if there's laws that have been broken, there's legal issues that arise, it's where you come talk to the pastor and we'll make sure those things are handled the way that they need to be handled. But if someone's going through a struggle and they bear their burden to you and you're helping them bear it to the Lord, help keep it confidential. Keep it confidential. That's really important. Because if you don't do that, you've broken their trust and they'll never share anything with you again. So confidentiality the second thing that I believe these groups as they develop and as they're organized need to have is that we need to realize it's not our job to rescue and fix every problem that everybody's going through. It's the Holy Spirit's job to fix people, not ours. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if somebody's sharing their struggle with you, at least for me, I'm a fixer. I remember when my wife and I first got married, she would tell me about something that was going on, a problem. I said, well, I can fix that. But you know, sometimes she didn't really need me to fix it. She just wanted me to listen and to hear. I think one of the dangers that happen when we're trying to lead other people in their walk with the Lord is, oh, that's your problem. Let me fix it right now. You're like, you haven't even heard what my problem really is yet. Give me some time to share. So a better way to do that would be to listen and say, you know what, let's pray about that. Hey, here's some scripture from God's word. Let God's word and God's spirit do the fixing. 
Number three, when you are communicating with one another, don't have crosstalk. Don't talk over somebody else. There's nothing worse than when you're in your class studying like we'll do on Sunday nights and you're trying to answer a question or share something that's on your heart or a burden or a need. So, hey, let me tell you about this week. We had a great time in the beach in Galveston. It was so fun. And you're like, nobody cares. Don't talk over other people. Say, that sounds simple and babyish. Well, maybe it is, but I think it's a good guideline for us to follow. Number four, these are just helpful things. Use humor responsibly. I know, we live in the snowflake generation. That's what gets talked about all the time. People can't handle it. Just trying to be funny. Not everything that you think is funny is funny. I was in a session one time at a youth pastor's retreat, and he did a whole session on how to use humor responsibly. Shandy remembers this. And it was a wonderful session. He said things, for example, like, if you notice something unique about somebody else and you just really want to make a joke about it, don't. Because they've already heard that joke. Like, if somebody's short, you don't have to say anything about it. If somebody's tall, you don't have to say anything about it. They already know. And you probably don't have a joke that's funny that they haven't heard before. It's just not, it's just not funny. Use it responsibly. If somebody's going through a struggle, don't, don't minimize and downplay. Oh, that's not a big deal. Ha, ha, ha. No, it is a big deal for them. This is just good, basic, relational stuff. I would say another thing we need to work on is giving everybody a chance to be able to share. So part of this structure that we're going to have, we're going to have people completing various uh, portions of a Bible study, and they'll have something to be able to share and speak. And we think that's important. I think that's important. I think God's Word teaches us that it's important, that the redeemed of the Lord are to say so, that we have to learn to be able to speak the truth in love. And so people have to learn to be able to articulate truth themselves. It's part of learning. We learn by listening, but we also learn by speaking the truth as well when you learn to articulate it. So when someone else is sharing, give them a chance. Don't monopolize the whole conversation. Number six, use I statements. What do I mean by this? Well, sometimes when you're working through a struggle or working through a passage of scripture, we can assume things and say, well, we all know this is true. No, we don't. I've learned this in preaching. Oh, there are so many times you'll hear preachers preach and assume that their audience knows things that they don't know. I've been amazed in my time ministering with teenagers. How many of them don't even know stories like David and Goliath? Daniel in the lion's den. Well, we all know. No, we don't. We don't all know. So say, well, I know this and this is what God's word. So help people learn instead of just assuming. Because what happens is you, you bring somebody along and you're trying to instruct them and teach them and you start assuming that they know things. You start blowing over them, kind of making fun of things and making little snide jokes and remarks. And pretty soon that person just says, you know what? These people aren't really interested in helping me. They're just interested in themselves. So use I statements. And I would say, finally, fight for relationship. Here's what's going to happen. If, if we're intentional about investing in other people's lives in our church, and I'll let James talk later about how this all lines up, but if we're intentional about doing this, there's going to be some friction. You know, there's less friction if we're not moving. 
If we all just sit around, don't do anything, there, there's really no friction. When you get out, you know, cars sitting in a parking lot, if they're all parked, you won't have any accidents. But you get them out on the highway and the freeway, and the faster they're moving, the more potential there is for accidents. And so I want to just kind of give this as a word of caution and warning and just, hey, reality check. If we're intentional about reaching lost people with the gospel and intentional about challenging other people in their spiritual growth, there's going to be some friction. You might hear somebody say something and misunderstand what they're trying to say. You might take offense at something. And you might be right. But they might be right too. When two people are fighting for their rights, nothing gets accomplished. If one person just always shuts down and goes away because the other person runs over them every time, it doesn't work well. But here's the thing, like, so let's say uh, Brother Joe, he's up front here. He and I were studying together, and I'm encouraging him about something God taught me. And, and then he says, well, but I've always read it this way. And I could get into a big argument with him at that point and say, you know what, that's a, good, that's a good, interesting thought. Let's study this out some more and let's see if we can understand this better. Or I could walk around to the church and say, Joe doesn't know what he's talking about. Joe's dumb. Joe's dumb. Well, now what have I done? I've gossiped. I've talked bad about my brother. I've hurt him in the process and I've hurt other people too because I'm just running my mouth. Joe, when you grow up a little more, then you'll understand it like me. Now I've used humor irresponsibly. I'm making fun of him. I'm belittling him. I'm not helping him in his walk with the Lord. I'm beating him up. I'm doing it to try to somehow make myself look better, but I'm not really making myself look better, am I? I'm making myself look like a fool. We have to be willing to fight for relationships, and that's going to be hard because there are going to be some times where you might feel a little concerned, frustrated. I didn't get my time to share. Or I had something I wanted to say. Or I, I, this person's always struggling with that. Or, Listen, this is where it's going to take some effort. And that looks like, you know what? On Tuesday, I'm calling up Joe. Hey, Joe, this week I know we were talking about that one thing and, and we kind of got crosswise. And I just want you to know I love you. And I'm sorry that we got crosswise. Maybe we could get together sometime and, and have some coffee and talk about it some more because I want to make sure we're on the same page because God's Word is the source of truth. It's not my Word and it's not my opinion. It's, it's God's Word and let's figure it out. And You know what, Brother Joe? I'm not sure if we can't. Let's go to Pastor. Let's see if he can help us figure this out because we're brothers and we want to be together and on the same page and going in the same direction. Fight for relationship. When you get involved in this process of making disciples, it will bring out conflict. You know why? It's not just because you're moving and there's friction. It's because you are fighting spiritual battles against the flesh and the devil. Be ready for the struggle. The devil doesn't like it when God's people get on the same page and are mobilized to do God's work. The struggle is real. Be willing to push through the conflict and fight for the relationship. Be willing and ready to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, we're to do this out of love. I want to take us back to one final passage, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. 
going to read this and then we'll have closing prayer. I'd like to, after we pray, as we pray tonight, maybe have you divide up and find somebody there around you and just take a few minutes and pray for the teenagers as they work this week and the adults that will be working with them this week and the ministry and the outreach that will take place this week. And I think it would be a wonderful thing if we just all take a few minutes to pray together to do that tonight. In Acts chapter 2, two verses 42 to 47, we have, and this is a whole other sermon in and of itself, but we have here a very straightforward and simple description of what the church was immediately following the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the day when Peter and the other followers of Jesus received the Holy Spirit of God and they began to speak one to another and praise God and they began to speak in other languages. The Bible says other tongues and they spilled out into the street and they're praising God and they're sharing the gospel and a whole bunch of people gathered around because they heard all this going on and Peter got up and he preached the gospel. And that day, the Bible says, 3,000 people were saved and baptized and added to the church. What an incredible day that was, the day of Pentecost. There's a lot of evangelism that took place there. But evangelism is not the full Great Commission. It's only the first step. Then they had to continue on the process of discipling these people so that they could be made fully into disciples of Christ who would then turn around and lead others so that the church could continue on. So how did they do it? Acts 2, 42 to 47, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You see it there? It's the truth-filled relation or truth-filled culture and a relational culture. There's doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That means they were gathering together regularly. They were eating meals together. They were spending time together. They were praying together. One of the things I've been concerned about as our church has grown is that the reality is we can't all be together all the time, and that's okay. But what are we doing to intentionally get people to where they're able to break bread together, spend time in prayer together, grow in the Word of God together? There needs to be this continued focus because there's a world that needs to be reached with the gospel. Right now, we have families that are right here in this local area, and we praise God for that. But you know, we've got families that drive from Katy. We have families that drive from way up north in different places. We've got families that drive from out east. I just wonder if in time the Lord might do some things so we might be seeing churches started in some of those places. Is it okay to drive into a church? Sure, I'm thankful for those that make the effort and do that. And we praise God for them. But might God be leading in time to help us to start some more places? You know, it'd be okay with me if we never moved out of this building, if we just sent people out fast enough that we didn't have to move out of this building. See, they continued very simply, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. I was thinking about this. I'm thankful for my guys tonight, Chase and Luis, they're serving in the back. And I know this morning Peter was back there. And Joe serves there. Winston, they're out of town right now, but he serves back there a lot and others. But you know what? You could have a wonderful church and not have an audiovisual team. 
You could have wonderful church and not have live stream. I'm thankful for those tools. But you could have a wonderful church without that. I'm thankful for those that minister in our music ministry. But you could have a wonderful church without all the instruments that we have, even though I'm thankful for them, and I think they really aid in our worship of the Lord. We could have a wonderful church even without a nursery, even though I'm very thankful for those who work in the nursery and serve over there. You know, you could have a wonderful church without a youth group, but I sure am thankful for our youth group. You could go on down the list, but you know what you can't have a wonderful church without? Without the Word of God. You have to have the Word of God. You have to have fellowship, believers together. You have to spend time eating meals and growing with one another. You have to spend time in prayer together. And what took place? Verse 43, fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. This isn't communism. But it's brothers and sisters in Christ looking out for the needs of others and saying, you know what, we can help. We can make a difference. They sold their positions and possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Hey, you have a need, let's help. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Church is not complicated. It should be simple. God's Word is very simple. We tend to overcomplicate it with all the extra things we try to add to it sometimes. And those can pull our focus away from the simple things that God has called us to do. But you know, it wasn't long after these verses, or what was described in these verses, took place here in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't very long before the church at Jerusalem became complacent. And God sent persecution in the form of Saul of Tarsus and others who came and brought persecution upon the church. And, and because of that, the church began to scatter. But as they scattered, they took with them the word of God, the fellowship of the other believers, this simple process of each one leading somebody else and following in their walk with the Lord. And God continued to multiply his church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. About 50 years ago, three men, David Markham, Don Sisk, and Ron White, over 50 years ago now, went to the country of Japan. All relatively young men. But they went with the purpose of taking the gospel and planting churches. David Markham got there first, and Ron White was soon to follow. And then Don Sisk came a short time after that. Both Ron White and Don Sisk have been here to our church. And in that first year that they were there, I, I remember I sat in Ron White's church planting class in seminary, and I said, Brother White, how long were you in Japan before you started your first church? And he said, one week. I said, well, when did you learn Japanese? He said, while we were planting the church. How did you do it? He said, well, God had sent us there to plant a church. And so that's what we did. He said, we hired an interpreter. And we had some flyers made up. 
you know, these are really nice. They're full color and we didn't have to print them here. He said back then they printed them all by hand in their apartment and then they hung them all over the walls and all over the room on strings to let them dry. He said the whole place just smelled like ink so strongly in the house. And he said, we printed tens of thousands of these flyers. He said, we went down to the streets and we'd hand them out. And he said, people, you know, if you just pass them out, the crowds were so dense that you could pass these flyers out very quickly. And he said, and we rented a little building, a little room, and we hired this interpreter. He said he was a chain-smoking, just a wicked, ungodly man, but he could speak English and we couldn't find anybody else. And so he agreed to come and he said, and so I would preach and then he would translate into Japanese. And uh, they had some services. They started on a Thursday night. They had a service Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night to preach the gospel every time. And then on Sunday, they had their first official service as the new church. And they had a small handful of believers that gathered that day. And as the story goes, it wasn't too long before that interpreter got saved. I guess preaching the gospel all the time finally got through to him and he trusted Christ. And a few months later, I think it was six or nine months later, Ron White went with Don Sisk to go help him, and they started the second church there in Japan and followed the same process. God blessed, and the church began to grow. It was very small initially, and, and, but some faithful people. And then a few months after that, about a, a year, a year and a half after the first church was started, Ron White went on to start the third church there in Japan. Only this time he was going really just he and his wife and the other two men were involved in leading the other churches. And he tells the story how they followed the same process, but come Sunday morning there was almost nobody there. And he thought to himself, he said, well, David Markham can plant a church. Don Sis can plant a church. Why can't I plant a church? And he said the Lord reminded him, Ron, it's not you that plants the church. It's the Lord who builds his church. And God began to build that church. Some years later, Don Sisk ended up becoming a mission director and came back here to the States and traveled around and, and helped to raise funds for mission work. But David Markham and Ron White stayed over there in Japan for many, many, many years. Ron White only came back um, when his wife passed away about now 15 years ago and Ron White's now had a very bad stroke and he's not in good health. But I asked Ron the last time he was here, I said over 50 years, what's taken place there in Japan? What's it look like today from those three little churches? And he said, you know, today there's over a hundred churches in Japan from those three churches that were started. And he said, and besides that, he said, some of the young men and young women who grew up in our churches, we started a little Bible training school. He said it's never had more than 15 or 20 students at a time. But he said now we have missionaries that are 100% financially supported by Japanese churches that are now ministering in 22 other foreign countries. So there's even more churches in the other countries than there are in Japan. And what's interesting, did you know if you have a Japanese passport, you can go to some countries that Americans can't go to? And so they're in some places that you and I couldn't even get to with an American passport. And Ron White told me for years then he's been able to travel to many countries around the world visiting these Japanese missionaries and encouraging them. And then he travels over to Japan and he encourages the churches there and spends time with them. 
kind of sounds a whole lot like the book of Acts. And I remember praying when God was leading us to start the church here. I thought, why does that only have to be in Japan? Why does that only have to be in the book of Acts? We've seen it happen in other places too. Some wonderful missionaries that have seen just an incredible move of God. Uh, Rick Martin, he's been in the Philippines for close to 50 years now. Did you know there's over a thousand churches there now from that first ministry that started? It's the Philippines. They don't have lots of money. They're riding little scooters and motorcycles around. They don't have some of the resources that we have, but they have the Word of God. They have the Spirit of God. They have the fellowship of the saints. They have prayer, communication with God. They have the gospel. They have everything they need. And it's my heart for our church that we would take what God's given us, our little lunch, and use it as efficiently and as effectively as we can. Not so that we can grow the biggest church in Houston right here. Someone else is already way ahead of us in that game. Because that's not really that important. But rather that we can make disciples who make disciples, we can reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude 22 says, And of some, having compassion, making a difference. I want my life to matter for Christ. And I want yours to matter for Him as well. And I believe it can. And I believe it is. And I believe it will if we'll be faithful. I'm going to close in prayer and then I'm just going to ask you if you can, maybe somebody's sitting close to you or you need to move a little bit, find somebody else and spend a few minutes praying for our outreach this week before we're dismissed tonight. Father, help us now. Help us to seek you and to follow you. Give us a heart for the souls of men and women and boys and girls around us who are lost and don't know Jesus. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to follow you day by day. Lord, give us patience. This process feels slow. I remember hearing Ron White tell me how, how it felt so slow and so hard and so difficult. Nothing would ever happen. But we look back today and say, what an incredible, incredible thing you've done. But Lord, in the moment, it's like watching paint dry. It doesn't seem like anything's taking place. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to realize that this work, it feels small, but it's not about our castle, it's your kingdom. Help us to look around and say, who can we lead to follow Christ and point others to you? In Jesus' name I pray.